0: Welcome back, Psychonauts. So we have a new installment today. We're going to be talking about sounds and learning. And you will be learning as you listen to the sounds that my mouth makes. Yeah, I don't know. I got nothing here. So anyhow, um, just to kind of get you guys started off, we're going to be talking about just the effects that, uh, you know, auditory has on us, just audio in general kind of thing. So, like, uh, just a little thing to study to show start you off with. Studies have shown that pairing a product with a pleasant sensation, usually some kind of memorable music, motivates consumers in choosing that product. So, just think about all the little jingles out there you hear with commercials on TV, the radio, what have you. So... And that's going to kind of bring us into uh, our first little bit here of classical conditioning. So classical conditioning is where a person or animal or animals, persons, whatever, um, their old response to a prompt or a stimulus so something going on, um, so just however they respond to it gets attached to something new, a new prompt or a new stimulus. So they always react one way, and it's because of... Like, I always think of food. Like, when I think of spicy chicken wings, uh, or I see spicy chicken wings, my, my mouth is going to salivate. All right, however, if, and, we'll, and I'm using an example here uh, from, from history, psychology history stuff, um, if we compare, like, the ringing of a bell every time that, you know, these spicy chicken wings are near me, then I will also salivate after a while. It'll become attached to that new stimulus. The bell ringing is uh, also... And that is called classical conditioning. And kind of the father of this is this Russian physiologist, Ivan Pavlov. So Pavlov wanted to understand how a dog's stomach prepares to digest food when something is placed in its mouth. Uh, then, when, then he noticed that the mere sight or smell of food was enough to start hungry dogs salivating. He became fascinated with how the dog anticipated the food and how salivation occurred before food was presented, and he decided to investigate further. Sorry for terrible accent. Uh, I will not stop until done with Pavlov, which will not take long. He began his experiments by ringing a tuning fork, this bing sound, and then immediately placing some meat powder on dog's tongue. He chose Tuning Fork because it was a neutral stimulus. The dog had never reacted differently to Tuning Fork, he just heard it before and and that's it. And a neutral stimulus goes along with this, but textbook definition, one that initially had nothing to do with the dog's salivating response that was caused by the meat. After only a few mealtimes that were prepared with the Tuning Fork, the dog started salivating as soon as it heard the Tuning Fork even if food was not placed in its mouth. This demonstrated that a neutral stimulus can cause a formerly unrelated response. Okay, that's the whole textbook definition in my terrible accent. So basically, you have this, there was, you know, we have this neutral stimulus, a fork, the, the tuning fork does nothing. Dog hears it, nothing. However, when you start pairing it with the food, all of a sudden, this neutral stimulus that usually caused no response in the dog now is starting to, elicit a response of the salvation. So Pavlov used the term unconditioned to refer to this stimulus or this tuning fork and to the automatic or involuntary response that it started to cause. So these responses could include uh, a number of different things. With the dog, it was the salvation, but it could be blushing, shivering, uh, being startled. So in this experiment, the food was the unconditioned stimulus. Uh, and that is an event that leads to a certain or predictable response, usually without any kind of previous training. The dog didn't need to be trained that, oh, food, salvation. Or, <laughs> salvation, <laughs> salivating, sorry. So, food just normally causes this. Um, dog doesn't have to be taught this or learn this or anything. It just, just happens. So, the salvation is the unconditioned response. So, unconditioned stimulus, food is present. The response... I will salivate. So it is an unconditioned stimulus. He did not need to be trained to salivate with the, with, you know, see this food. He'll be, you know, salivating. And the response of actually salivating is an unconditioned response, a reaction that occurs naturally, automatically, and that is when the unconditioned stimulus is presented. Basically, it's a reflex if you can think of it like that. Now, under normal conditions, that tuning fork, as we said, would cause no salvation. There's no reason for that. So the dog had to be taught or conditioned to associate that tuning fork sound with food. So an ordinary neutral event... or that this stimulus provide, you know, would be associated with food. And then the salvation that was caused was a conditioned response. So even though salvation already happened, which was unconditioned with the unconditioned stimulus, when it's paired with the conditioned stimulus, it becomes a conditioned response. So the tuning fork normally it was nothing, it was neutral, but now it is being paired up and now it is conditioned that this stimulus will re- elicit a response, a conditioned response of salvation. So a conditioned response is a conditioned response of, of, of a learning a learned outcome like this. You you have learned to do this. Oh, I know this one is tough to explain, so I apologize. This is a bit tough to follow. So uh, there so many different things uh, that may serve as a conditioned stimulus for this salvation. So the sight of food um, entering the room, the sound of a tone, a flashing light paired with it can... Can be turned into this conditioned stimulus, and then lead to the salvation. And once they they get this, it's called an acquisition, or the acquisition of a classically conditioned response. Generally occurs gradually over time, and then you get this acquisition. You've learned it kind of thing. Remember, that's all about the learning. And. There can also get this thing called generalization. And this occurs when an animal responds or reacts to a second stimulus similar to the original one uh, or the original conditioned stimulus without prior training with this second stimulus. So, for instance, uh, Pavlov, he was able to do um, kind of like the opposite. He taught this dog to respond to a circle by always pairing meat powder with the circle. Um, But he never paired it with the oval. So the dog was able to discriminate between the oval and the circle. However, if Pavlov hadn't done this training um, that led to discrimination, the ability to respond to different ways to different stimulus, um, then the dog would probably be like, oh, an oval circle, they're the same generalization. So... For instance, if you used a cross and a T, the dog would be like, oh, yeah, they both give me food, so, yep, they're the same generalization. However, when you start working with them and saying, "Uh uh-uh, oval, circle, difference, cross, T, separate, different, that leads to discrimination. So you're able to tell the difference. So generalization, "Ah, it all looks the same. Discrimination, nope, there is a difference. You have to learn. All right, now, after repeatedly, you know, Pavlov striking this tuning fork without giving food, the dog stopped associating the sound with food. This is called extinction. So the sound of the tuning fork was no longer reliable and it no longer caused salvation. This is that extinction. So, um, the textbook definition, the conditioned response just gradually died out. This response was no longer reliable predictor of the arrival of food, therefore extinction Alright, so let's get into a case study here. A little Albert. So John B. Watson and Rosalie Rayner use conditioning on a human infant. That's a little Albert. Okay. Modern day we don't do this anymore. This is called unethical. You can't do this kind of stuff to humans. So, this John B. Watson uh, questioned the role that conditioning played in the development of emotional responses in children. So, they're like, Yeah, well, I think we can elicit these different emotional responses. So, he and Raymond attempted to condition an 11th month, 11th month old infant named Albert to be afraid of lab rats. So, at first, little Albert happily played with the rats, no issues. However, when he would be playing with the rats, Watson would strike a steel bar with a hammer to produce a very loud, frightening sound, and that would scare Albert. Well, when he would get scared, he would have the rats in front of him, so he was scared of the rats, scared of the sound, and he started to associate the two together. So eventually Albert just started to show a general fear each time he saw a rat, even though that sound was no longer being played because he had just, he had just associated that this was scary and it was associated with this rat. So uh, this is this demonstrated um, you know exactly what they kind of were looking for. They taught little Albert to fear things that he had previously not feared, an emotional response. This is unethical today. Now it provided evidence, yes, that emotional responses can be classically conditioned in humans, but this is not cool. Uh, and just a little update: in 2012, researchers claimed to have identified the child that was little Albert then and is grown up. And the boy suffered from neurological problems and brain abnormalities at the at birth. So therefore, the child was not considered a quote unquote normal child. Uh, however, which would alter people would think would alter the outcome of the experiment because it was not a, you know, kind of control, it wasn't a control group, but just like a baseline, Uh, but this does not alter the outcome of the experiment. It's also still, you know, not cool to do that. Alright, one more example here for you, and then we're going to get on to taste versions, but uh, bedwetting alone. So classical conditions in 1988. Hobart Merrer and Molly Merrer, I'm guessing husband and wife here, discovered a practical solution to the problem of bedwetting. So one reason bedwetting occurs is that children do not wake up during the night To the body's signals that they have a full bladder. So they developed a device that they called the bell and pad, which consisted of two metallic sheets with small holes, and this was wired to a battery that would run an alarm. When the sleeping child moistened the sheet, the circuit closed, causing the alarm to go off and wake the child. Then it was bathroom time, and this started getting their body kind of used to waking up right around bathroom time, and it proved to be very effective. So, Anyhow, that is our conditioning. And I'll give you guys a few more examples here. But I'll give you one kind of in the same realm, but the idea of taste aversion. So um, you can actually um, develop taste aversions from experiencing different things. So it's kind of that same conditioned responses here. So you decide to try a new appetizer. Here's an example for you at a restaurant. You go there, and you become violently ill that night. Maybe you just got sick or whatever. But you will start to develop a taste aversion to whatever that was. And you may never be able to look at that appetizer again or even want to try it again without feeling a little bit sick. So you've been conditioned into, um, into in, uh, feeling this way. Um, but I guess that would be an unconditioned response. It depends how you got sick, I guess. So um, I'll give you some other uh, unconditioned stimulus here. All right, the dentist drill or the sound of a dentist drill. All right, this is a conditioned stimulus. And the conditioned response, so you are you hear the sound, and you know, pain is So all of a sudden, now, whenever you do this drill, you feel the tension, alright? Now, the unconditioned was the drill to begin with, because it was just a drill, it didn't do anything to you, alright? However, this tension, is the unconditioned response as well, that drills is forcing it on you. So just seeing the drill and the sound can cause tension. But the drill itself was unconditioned, but it of attention to you. Um let's see, maybe I can give you another one here. To out to out this. Um so, um a a pop, uh, soda pot. Alright? So a conditioned stimulus. Alright, you see that can, I have a favorable feeling, alright? Good, I like this. This is conditioned to see this can have this favorable feeling, alright? That is good. Um, now there could be a unconditioned stimulus. There's a, a song a jingle. Okay? Regular jingle. Um I've heard it before, but once I pair it with this food that I like, the drink that I like, now I hear that jingle and get that favorable feeling. So the, the conditioned response and the unconditioned response are the same, but we found a way to attach something else that to catch a jingle to it. So basically your summary is. To bring it all together. Classical conditioning helps animals and humans predict what is going to happen. So uh, I don't know how else to. Help you out. that's just kind of the bare bones. Now, this whole idea of classical conditioning is an example of behaviorist theory. We're going to get into behaviorism. Which is the attempt to understand behavior and mental states in terms of relationships between observable stimuli and observable responses. And these behaviorists, which is part of behaviorism, are psychologists who study only those behaviors that can be observed and measured. And they emphasize actions instead of just thoughts. Like what people are actually doing, what's observable, what's measurable—not just what's going on in the brain person's environment is what determines the uh, how they So, um, to give you a uh, kind of the learner will repeat or eliminate behaviors to get a reward or to avoid and punishment. So, make sure you know the difference between classical conditioning and operations. So, the big difference lies in how the researcher conducts the experiment. So, classical conditioning, which we've already gone over pretty extensively so far, if we've been talking about this stuff for, oh, good morning, we're getting close to 20 minutes, so I'm going to have to... I try to stop around 20, hopefully you guys have figured that out. So classical condition, the researcher presents the conditioned and unconditioned stimuli independent of the participant's behavior. Reactions to the conditioned stimulus are then observed by the researcher, all right, and then we eventually kind of pair them together. Right, the operant condition, this is our new one, the participant must engage in a behavior in order for the program outcome to occur. So if they don't, do it, they won't know you. you need to go to X, U, X, and C, Y, whatever. So, basically, the study of operant conditioning is a study of how voluntary behavior, we're not forcing people into it, is affected or influenced by its consequences. So, natural interactions and reactions. So, um, classical conditioning, the response to triggered by the stimulus is an involuntary response. Operant Conditioning. The voluntary response causes a reinforcing stimulus. Alright, so classical conditioning. Always a specific stimulus that elicits a certain response. Operant Conditioning. No identifiable stimulus. Learner must first respond, then behavior is reinforced. We're not really telling them what to do. We're waiting for them to do something and then we'll reinforce it. So we have to wait until they do something and then we're like, yes, good job. Alright, classical conditioning. Specific stimulus does not depend upon learner's response. Operant conditioning. Reinforcement depends on learner's response behavior. Alright, and finally, classical conditioning. Environment elicits response from the learner. Operating conditioning? Learner actively operates on its environment. Interacts with its environment, and that brings us to positive and negative reinforcement. With Berhus Frederick Skinner, probably better known as B.F. Skinner. All right, so reinforcement, a stimulus or an event that increases the likelihood that the preceding behavior will be repeated. So um, you might. So When someone does something you like, you give them social approval. Good job there, buddy. You've Good job there, buddy. Extra privileges. Enjoy your day, buddy. And you give them something that they like. Those are ones. It's something to reinforce the behavior that you like to see. And primary importance is one that satisfies a biological need. Uh, so hunger, thirst, sleep, um, food water are examples of primary forces. Now secondary learning forces the learning force are the force of the subject. one of the centers of the primary forces. yeah, money can buy things that you want. Um, so, uh, I guess others, for secondary reinforcement: praise, status, privilege, uh, your grades in school are just numbers, but they they get you other things. And I'm going to uh, slow down a little bit here, I think. Uh, all right, let's talk about this reinforcement of these behaviors uh, pause here on this one to we'll come back with, uh, we'll talk about schedules stuff. We'll be back soon.